Amen. As I was reflecting on Luke 23 this week, my mind kept going to the Nicene Creed. And I know it's not the first of the month. We'll recite it together next Sunday morning. But there is interesting language to observe, the names and titles that we see there. There's language about the Father. The Creed says He's the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And there's language about the Son. There's the one Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, incarnate by the Holy Spirit. There's language about the Spirit then. He's the one that proceedeth from the Father and the Son. The Spirit is the Lord and giver of life, who spoke by the prophets. We recite all of these things. And in addition to the, the words of the Father, Son, and Spirit, there is the name Mary. Jesus was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, the text says in the Creed. There's one more name in the Nicene Creed. I wonder if you're surprised it would be present. The Nicene Creed puts it this way. The Son was made man and crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. And in the Apostles' Creed before that, the Apostles' Creed says Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Well, our scene this morning, in both the morning and evening messages, will focus on what these church creeds reflect on. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. Of all the different leaders that could have been named, the name Pontius Pilate finds its way into creeds of the church. And that name in infamy has been spoken for centuries that the one who knew there was no guilt in this man gave in to the prevailing voice of the crowd. The scene this morning is the scene that climaxes the trials of Jesus. We've seen Jesus go through various Jewish stages. He came before Annas and before Caiaphas and before the Sanhedrin. When you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those Jewish trials unfolded in three stages. And the Roman trials, they unfolded in three stages too. He appears before Pilate and he's sent to Herod Antipas. And then he goes back to Pilate. It's this last scene of the Roman trials that we see today. The climax of these trials where in the early hours of Friday morning of the day of his crucifixion, it has all been leading up to this. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Jesus was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. We're told in verses 13 to 16, Pilate's plan, a plan that he had, but which did not prevail in the crowd. He had a plan in verses 13 to 16 to punish and release Jesus. Look with me together in verse 13. As we see the text tell us, Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. Now we've seen the first two groups before. The chief priests are among those religious leaders with temple duties and people who would have been admired and looked to as authorities in the ancient world. People who knew the word of God and would have led in leadership at the temple, held and shared responsibilities. Oh, the chief priests were so important, right? The the rulers would have been considered those who would have been besides priests, but looked at with religious leadership and instruction among the people. But that third group, the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, well, there's nothing about their status or religious leadership in that word. It has in view the masses. And we've seen crowds say things about Jesus before. At the early part of the week, on the first day of Passion Week, he rides into Jerusalem. 
And there are people present, not just religious leaders, there are non-religious leaders who are proclaiming that this is the son of David. Blessed is this one who's come in the name of the Lord. Crowds can be quite fickle, you see. Here at the end of the week, here are some people, perhaps some of those still present in the early part of the week, that see this. And the chief priests and the rulers and the people are all called together by Pilate. It's as if uh, everybody who had a high religious status and those who shared no religious status are gathered together for an announcement. Now, Pilate's announcement would, would hold sway. It's like, okay, here's this Roman leader. What's he got to say? It has to do with Jesus. And this is the early time of the morning when Roman verdicts are announced. And already people are aware of Barabbas and others who are being charged with insurrection and who will die that day. So here's Pilate gathering everybody together. Everybody listen up. Everybody listen up. And what's he going to say? And in verse 14, he tells them, you brought me this man. Now, not everybody was probably in Gethsemane. It's present when Pilate's making that announcement. Some of them were. I bet some of those had gone without sleep that whole night. This has been a long night for some of them. They've been trying to see it through to the very end. When Passover meals are shared with families later that day, they're going to be exhausted. Because they have just been trying to ensure the death of Jesus and that nothing disrupts it. But then Pilate says, you brought me this man as one misleading the people. That was one of their charges. He's causing trouble all around the land. After examining him before you, and here they are with bated breath. Here he comes, here he comes. I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against them. Oh my. You talk about a moment that's just deflating the whole religious leadership. Everything they'd been planning, conspiring, working toward. They'd paid silver to Judas as part of it. All of this now at risk of crumbling before their very eyes. I didn't find this man guilty of any of your charges. We should recognize that here is a Roman leader making a pronouncement of the innocence of Jesus. That's no small thing. The narrator records these words of Pilate for us so that the reader recognizes Pilate knows the truth here. Not because he understands all of Jesus' identity. He knows Jesus isn't guilty of the things they say he's guilty of. So here's a leader who exercises discretion on lives to deliver and lives to give up. Pilate has this kind of authority. It's a lot of authority to wield the power over life and death. And the religious leaders know this. That's why they need Pilate to side with them if he sides against them and releases Jesus. Then all of their work has gone to nothing. So it's a heavy moment. Pilate not only speaks of himself as not finding anyone, anything guilty in Jesus, any of those charges that could stick. Pilate knows, hey, I'm not the only one that listened to him and examined him. I'd also send him to Herod. Pilate goes ahead and interprets in verse 15 what Herod thought. And he says, neither did Herod. For he sent him back to us. He's giving us just a little summary right there of verses 6 through 12. Jesus had been sent from Pilate to Herod who had jurisdiction over Galilee, which is where Jesus and his ministry had begun and had at least primarily in the Gospels been located. 
And Herod happened to be in town from Galilee, like so many pilgrims who would travel to the feasts. And Herod's in town. And so Pilate had sent Jesus to Herod for an examination. And perhaps also because Pilate didn't want all of the verdict hanging on his own decision. Let's pass some of this and share some of this responsibility. Could have been a a political maneuver for sure there. But he says, look, I didn't find this man guilty. Neither did Herod find this man guilty. So here you have Herod Antipas and Pilate. A royal ruler and governor of the land named here pronouncing Jesus innocent of the charges. That's as much of a legal judicial announcement on such a day with formal setups that you can hope for if you're the guilty one or the accused one, I should say. The accused one. You would hope that in your stead, people would intervene and say, we've examined him and we're not just going to crucify anybody. He's not guilty. Look, in verse 15, it's repeated. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. That last phrase, deserving death, that's the key there. He knows, according to the Jews, Jesus has aggravated them. They charge him with law-breaking. They charge him with disrupting the populace. But he's no political threat. He's no kind of social divisive figure that's going to mean Rome has to take action. Pilate says, that's not our problem. It's not my problem. It's not Herod's problem. I understand that you have an issue with him, but in something deserving death by the Roman Empire, he has done nothing. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 19, verdicts needed to be established on the grounds of two to three witnesses. Well, let's just note, Pilate being witness number one, Herod Antipas being witness number two, these two Roman leaders have now declared to the group of the people, the religious leaders and the chief priests, he is not guilty. Pilate says, here's what I'll do. Because I know know you want something. I'll give you this in verse 16. I will therefore punish and release him. The word punish there is, it's not ambiguous. In the original language, it refers to a kind of beating with a whip. So the punishment is what the other Gospels would call the flogging of Jesus. That's what's in view. Pilate says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll have him flogged. Because this Roman punishment was severe. And unlike Jewish restrictions that would leave things at 39 lashes, the Roman soldiers were not so bound by that number. And could simply swing the whip until their arms ached. And when they would whip an individual, when they would flog an individual, the end of the straps contained shards of bone and rock and things that would just brutalize the individual. The individual would typically be stripped of nearly all clothing with their hands tied above their head and whipped with pieces of bone and lead and shards of things until their very muscles were exposed, their skin shredded, and sometimes there would be a death due to the flogging. Some people who would be flogged and then crucified, according to that plan, never made it to the site of crucifixion because they died under such brutal punishment. Well, Pilate says, he's not done anything deserving of death, but I will have him brutally beaten for you. And then I'll release him. And that last phrase, oh, that must have just stuck in their mind. Release him so that we go back to all this trouble with him. So that it's just going to pick up where it leaves off. We will not stand for that. So verses 13 to 16 are Pilate's plan to punish and release Jesus. 
But the crowd's response in verses 18 and 19 is a demand for the release of Barabbas. Oh, they'll tolerate somebody's release, not Jesus. In verses 18 and 19, but they all cried out together, away with this man. That means away to his death. It's an idiom. It's a way of saying away with this man, not just send him on home. You know, forget the punishment. Just away with this man. It's not what that means. Away with this man is a phrase that would denote severity of not just punishment, but death. They want this man taken away, led away to his death. Similar to Isaiah 53, 8, when it tells us the suffering servant was led or taken away. In the providence of God, for this man to be sent away or to be led away, he would embody the suffering servant imagery in Isaiah 53. The one who would come to die for sinners to be led away. So when they say away with this man, they're not thinking they're fulfilling the scriptures, but they are. They are. With this insistence, it will have an effect upon Pilate, as we'll see in a moment. Away with this man. According to Mark 15, there is some information here that paints a picture of a custom. We have to imply the custom in Luke 23, but in Mark 15, a little more information is given to us. Mark 15, 6 says, at the Passover feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among whom the rebels in prison who had committed murder and in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. I want to reflect on this custom for a moment. Have you ever wondered Why did they do that? Releasing people and uh, like someone who was deserving of crucifixion according to the Roman Empire. What was this exchange for? The background seems to be that this would be an individual each year who was pro-Jew but who aggravated the Romans. The charge of Barabbas and the others in prison was an insurrection. And people who had a zeal strong enough to uh, cause them to move to action could absolutely stimulate and excite the Jews, but anger the Romans because it would be treason or rebellion. So they seem each year to have a custom where they would release a prisoner that the Jews would delight to have back, who would be pro-ethnic Israel, who would absolutely be anti the Roman occupiers, and and who the Romans could tolerate as one individual released. A kind of concession. The interest that Pilate and the Roman leaders would have here is that Pilate doesn't have a great history with the Jewish people. There had been some incidents and some slayings of uh, people in the populace in years past. And so when a Roman leader could make a small concession to ingratiate himself, To in some way draw the Jews in and give them something that they wanted. It would further establish that good peaceable bond together. So this custom had those kinds of purposes. To release someone the Jews would want. Well they know exactly who they want. They don't say hey we've got to go and figure out some some names. And who all do you have there? And we'll be back this afternoon. Can you just pause this account? They all say in verse 18 Barabbas. And this could mean that Barabbas was the leader of such an insurrection with these other prisoners. Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. They don't even name Jesus, though they know who he is. Away with this man. And the name they give is, we want Barabbas released. A man in verse 19 who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Note the irony here. 
Jesus has been charged for misleading and disturbing the people. Jesus is innocent of those crimes. You know who's not innocent of those crimes? Barabbas. Barabbas is literally guilty. Guilty, charged and guilty, along with others involved in whatever rebellious activity he was, he was doing. They are guilty of the things Jesus is wrongly charged with. And Barabbas will not face the punishment of that crime. They say, release him and crucify away with Jesus. Barabbas is a man thrown into prison in verse 19 for an insurrection started in the city. Now, if you're Barabbas, you're aware of the time. You, you've been prepped for this. You probably even knew in any of your rebellious leading activity that this could end with my death. So Barabbas isn't surprised at, at uh, the way this has been going. He's expecting that with the Roman uh, tyranny that can just squelch rebellion and, uh, and political sedition. I've done what I've done. It failed and I'm going to die. And I'm going to die an excruciating public death of crucifixion. So Barabbas is just waiting. He's on the green mile, right? He is just waiting for his crucifixion. And we know that Barabbas' activity was not just anywhere. In verse 19, it was in Jerusalem. And he's committed murder. He has taken people's life. He has actually created dissension and rebellion in the city of Jerusalem. So of all places, this is the place where Barabbas started the work, will be, was to be crucified for it, and now will be released. He's a violent criminal in the eyes of Rome. And in verses 20 through 22, Pilate does not immediately say, okay, fine. Look at the insistence of Pilate. Even this is perhaps politically risky. He's already declared Jesus is not guilty. Herod thinks the same thing. I'm going to punish him and then release him. They disagree and start pushing back. Pilate continues to say in verse 20, he addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. Can you feel the conflict within Pilate? He's not just eager to crucify people. Let's fill up some crosses today. Uh, Pilate wants to conduct himself in a way where innocent people are not knowingly crucified. But he's caught here between what he knows he should do and the pressure put upon him by those on the outside. And that crowd is getting more and more insistent and they are not backing down. And if things continue in this manner, and the Jewish leaders, the chief priests, the officers of the temple, the, Roman, the Jewish leaders, and the Jewish people, if they don't get their way and are increasingly escalatingly outraged, Pilate could find himself dealing with a kind of mob, riotous context that is not the thing he wants to deal with. Not on Passover. This could further damage and erode the trust and bonds that they have. He desires to release Jesus. What's their response? They no longer even say away with this man. They get right to the point in verse 21. Crucify, crucify him. Crucifixion was not a normal Roman punishment for any old crime. This was a punishment for treasonous, politically seditious activity. If you were leading rebellion in some way, large or small, against the Roman Empire, you could expect excruciating public death. 
And they would line the streets going into Jerusalem with crosses so that anybody coming into Jerusalem would know that's what happens if you go against Rome. That's what they can do to you. And it was a brutal and humiliating and shameful and long-suffering death. Crucify, crucify Him. This form of capital punishment in the ancient world did not originate with the Romans. Or even the Greeks before them. It originated with the Persians before the Greeks. So as the Persians led way to the Greeks and the Greeks to the Romans, this has been for centuries a practice of brutal, humiliating punishment. It was a deterrent. People knew that if they went against Rome, this is where things could go. His response in verse 22 You can at least appreciate how much Pilate is trying before he ends up giving in. In verse 22, a third time, he says to them, why? And in the end, that's the question, right? If he says, we haven't found him guilty after examining him, Herod thinks the same thing I do. He's not guilty of these charges. And you want him crucified. Why? What evil has he done? I find in him. No guilt deserving death. In our passage this morning, Pilate has tried three times to release Jesus. I will punish and then release him, it says. And then it says he was desiring to release Jesus, talking to them again. And then it says here in a third time in verse 22, I find in him no guilt deserving death. I will punish therefore and release him. For the reader, we are recognizing A pronouncement that Christ is without sin. Pilate isn't meaning to probably make a theological statement about Jesus' person. But we're following along the whole span of the gospel, most of which scenes Pilate isn't in. And we have seen Jesus isn't in his identity, in his claims and in his miracles. Lead people to say, who is this? What sort of man is this? What should we understand him to be? Why is he doing these things? Where does his authority come from? And part of what we need to conclude about Jesus along the span of the Gospels, here is a man who does not do what is wrong, who loves and embodies all that is right, all that is holy, all that is true. And when Pilate says, I find no guilt in him, he shouldn't just mean for the reader's sake what's going on with the proceedings and the trials. Zoom out to all of Jesus' life. There is no guilt in him. The crowd in verses 23 to 25, it says they were urgent. Demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. Oh, Pilate's sweating bullets at this point. I mean, he's on the platform, his tribunal, his judgment's been made, and they're rejecting it. He he is pushing back and asking why they're refusing. He's told them what he's willing to do, and they're demanding Barabbas be released and Jesus be crucified. And Pilate knows he has done nothing wrong, though. Why would I crucify him? They were urgent, demanding loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. Verse 23 there, that last part's a foreshadowing. It tells us what we're going to see in verses 24 and 25. Because if their voices prevailed, what we know is that they will get their way. The crowd wants what they want, no matter how much Pilate knows it's wrong. Jesus has done nothing deserving of death. And in verse 24, so 
Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. Despite what he knows, despite Herod Antipas agreeing with his own assessment, despite what he has pushed and offered to punish Jesus, he's not just going to release Jesus scot-free. I will severely punish him. And then let him go. But they will have none of that. Nothing short of Jesus' public death will, will suffice. Part of the reason they need this to happen, by the way, is that they need the Jesus movement to be absolutely shut down. There needs to be no possibility that somebody took his life in an alley somewhere. Or that he traveled elsewhere around Galilee and then just wound up missing. They need everybody in Jerusalem to know. And everybody who came to Jerusalem for the feast. All the many hundreds of thousands that were there. Here is Jesus finally dead. They need this movement to stop. They can't, the idea of just letting him suffer and then releasing him, all that will do is postpone their troubles until he recovers. They need him dead. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he, in verse 25, released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. Now in Luke's Gospel, as Luke writes those words, you can just imagine him slowly shaking his head as he pins it. Because we're to sense the absurdity of the situation. Luke just says, I just want to remind you, he's releasing the man who had been thrown into prison. Oh wait, thrown into prison wrongly? No, for insurrection. And for murder. Now sometimes it is said that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. And while that is an attempt to try to render the original original word. It's better understood to be something like a criminal or a murderer. An insurrectionist. They would not crucify a mere thief. You should just know that. That's not what the policy would be. But they would crucify those who committed crimes against the state. Those who committed sedition and rebellion against the Roman Empire. When it tells us he released Barabbas who had been thrown into prison. Notice he had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. We should consider plausibly the case. That the people who would be crucified on Jesus' right and left. Were, had, had been with Barabbas. That the people being crucified that day. Were all part of the murderous insurrectionist activity in Jerusalem. So that's why they're being killed there. They're being crucified. And here's Barabbas. You know what's Barabbas thinking? Okay here come the guards. Here they come. Here they come. This is my moment. You know feeling all the normal trembles of of the body. Feeling uh, just light from head to toe. Knowing what's coming. The brutality of crucifixion. He has known that this day would come. If he got caught. And his seditionist activities failed. And here come the guards. Here they come to his cell. Here they come to the prison. And he's there with the others. Who had already been thrown there. They're going to die that day. Barabbas get up. You're being released. Now, I don't think he argued with that. I'm just saying, I don't, I don't know what all Barabbas thought, but I bet he looked at his guys, I bet he gathered whatever he had, and he was out of there. If you're Barabbas, things took a turn that you would never have bet your life on. Released? I'm not going to be crucified? That's why I'm in prison knowing all that. It's not like they had a mistaken person. Okay, we, we realized Barabbas, we had the wrong guy. You know, um, 
Barabbas had been thrown into prison for murder and for insurrection. He is guilty. <laughs> this is no mistaken identity. Uh, this is no, oh, upon further investigation, I'm glad we didn't go through it. This Barabbas, you're an innocent man. He's being released as if he was. Barabbas leaves. I wonder what that did to Barabbas that day. There's no report about what happens in the aftermath with Barabbas. I wonder if he lingered on the outskirts of the area just trying to see what would happen next. I mean, his fellow compatriots are on crosses. But then there's the other one on his own cross. Okay, I'm not on that cross. Who is that on my cross? Jesus of Nazareth. That's what the title above the cross would say. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So he's on my cross, huh? I don't know how any of this affected Barabbas. We don't know. Sometimes names are mentioned in the Gospels, not only so that people could know firsthand who could could, uh, offer credible confirmation of the Gospel stories, but because some of the people that are in the Gospels and in the letters of Paul and the letters of the other apostles are there because they became believers. The early church knew their names and therefore their names were significant. I would love to know that Barabbas realized and would have the story to tell in the generations to come, Jesus of Nazareth died in my place. I don't know all the questions that we'll have when we get to heaven, but I think among the top ten for me might be, is Barabbas here? I would like to know if he made it. I would like to know if on that day he was released, he thought through the fact that he was guilty and then was not condemned and somebody who was not guilty was condemned and what would that do to a person? Barabbas is released from prison. The one who had been guilty for these sins. The one for whom they asked. But Jesus was delivered over to their will. You see, the Nicene Creed tells us he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. And yes, delivered over to their will will mean he will be flogged. We can imply that here because of the other gospel accounts. He will be brutally, severely beaten. But delivered over to their will, what did they want? What was their will for him? Well, it wasn't just punishment and then release. So being delivered over to their will is Pilate's way of saying, I will give you what you want. I will punish him, which was what was typical for someone even to be crucified. And then I will crucify him. Delivering him over to their will. Now it may look like, on the face of it, with that language, that their will is what triumphs. But there's more wills at work than theirs. When it says Jesus was delivered over to their will, I bet Luke was smiling when he wrote that part of the language because it's not just their will that will be done. Jesus is delivered up according to the will of God on behalf of all of those sinners. He is being delivered over to their will, but not their will ultimately. In Gethsemane, Jesus is in control. Could I not call upon my father and he at once send 12 legions of angels? They are not as in control as they think they are. Jesus is sovereign. They are not taking his life from him apart from his will. He is laying his life down. My will be done in yours, O God. Your will. 
He delivered Jesus over to their will, it says. And the reader knows Pilate means, okay, I will give them what they want. We can zoom out from the storyline of Scripture to realize this is where all the biblical stories and shadows have been heading. All of them. That the previous books of the Old Testament storyline are leading to the giving up of Jesus according to the will of God above and beyond theirs. They released Barabbas. Oh, that name even. The name Barabbas. You can see it in two parts. Bar, Bar, and then Abbas. The name Barabbas means son of the father. What a name to have. In the providence of God, what a name to have at that moment. Parents name him Barabbas, you know. People calling him Barabbas as he's growing up. His compatriots in the prison knowing that he's Barabbas. The guards coming in. Come on, Barabbas. They are releasing the one whose name means son of the father. And dying in the place of the son of the father is the son of the father. An incredible expression of divine will and providence over the whole thing. It's astounding. We don't know what Barabbas did next. We don't know if it gave him a hard time. We don't know if his prisoners, fellow prisoners with him said, why is he going and not us? Uh, they didn't ask for all of us. They just said, they said one name, Barabbas. They didn't say our names, are you sure? And Barabbas goes, the son of the father released. And in his place, the son of the father will die. Luke, Luke's gospel is not the only thing Luke wrote. He writes in the book of Acts, the, the speeches of Peter Peter says in Acts 3, 13 and 14 that the people in Jerusalem crucified the holy and righteous one. And here it is. They crucified the holy and righteous one for a murderer. What is Peter alluding to in Acts 3, 14? In Acts 3, 13 and 14, Peter is alluding to the fact that they demanded the holy and righteous one be murdered. And, re- and have released an actual murderer. Peter knows this, and it's included in his announcement to the people in Jerusalem. And they say, you know, what shall we do? And Peter's preaching repentance, and he's preaching that they be baptized, and he's preaching that they be saved, and that Jesus' name is the only name that saves. Jesus' name is the saving name, though he had no sin. Now, you might look at this story in Luke 23 and think, this is just crazy. They're demanding that Barabbas be released and Pilate just went along with it. And Barabbas was actually guilty and Jesus is dying in the place of Barabbas. But I also want to say to you this morning that you are Barabbas and I am Barabbas. We are not those who upon further investigation have actually been found not guilty of sin. You might not have started an insurrection in Jerusalem like Barabbas did. But in the mirror of God's word, oh friends, there's not one of us not guilty. And if it looks crazy to you that Jesus, the innocent one, is going to die in the place of Barabbas, that's telling you a gospel story. Do you see it? The story of the gospel is, here's the substitute. Barabbas is the guilty one. Jesus is the not guilty one. He's dying for Barabbas. And the whole story of the gospel is Jesus has died in our place. We are the unrighteous. 
So Peter says in Acts 3, yeah, he's the holy and righteous one. That's the one that died. Yes, what we needed is that the unrighteous be delivered and only the work of the holy and righteous one could do it. In the providence of God, in the irony of the situation, this one who was truly guilty of what they charged him with was released. And the scandal of the gospel is that as we come to Jesus, we are released, not because we're not guilty. We're released because Jesus died in our place. The message of the gospel is that we are Barabbas. J.C. Ryle says in his commentary on Luke that there's a special appropriateness in the public declaration of Christ's innocence. Our Lord was about to be offered up, he said, as a sacrifice for sins. And it's fitting that those who examined him should formally pronounce him guiltless and blameless. 2 Corinthians tells you in chapter 5 that he who knew no sin. And his disciples knew it. And Pilate knew it. And Herod knew it. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. That's what you're watching in Luke 23. Do you see it? That you're Barabbas and you're offered release because on the cross, Jesus dies in your place, you the guilty? 1 Peter 3 tells us in verse 18 that God is bringing people to Himself, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. That's how He does it. The substitutionary work of the atonement. Something very special about that day. It was the day of the Passover lambs to be sacrificed. And you know, you couldn't have just any lamb. You know in the Old Testament, it's very specific. In the book of Exodus, in the book of Leviticus, these sacrifices that had to be brought had to meet criteria. And all of this was based upon the template of the actual Exodus itself in the tenth plague. The tenth plague was the judgment of God falling on those who were not covered by the blood of the Lamb. And they had to set apart an unblemished, spotless Lamb that would be the pattern to symbolize what we morally needed to be, but were not. And all the sacrifices that were forward after that Exodus event and leading up to the cross... All of them needed to be according to a certain criteria in Exodus and Leviticus, a spotless lamb, unblemished. And I'm not saying Peter and Herod intended it this day. I'm just saying God superintended what they intended. And so when God has Pilate and Herod calling together these people and Herod's got his uh, opinion and Pilate's made his examination, they might not mean to do this, but what they do for the crowd, for those who have ears to hear that day, is they say, behold, here is your unblemished lamb. The one without any sin, the one without any spot, the one who is indeed the worthy sacrifice. Let's stand together as we pray.